there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Pat Riley, Santa Ana Register. Would you like to know what happened to Dorothy Jane Scott? I'm listening. I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man, and she denied having someone else. And I killed her. Dorothy Jane Scott's disappearance is a story that starts and ends with phone calls. Anonymous phone calls. Threatening phone calls. Perplexing phone calls. Phone calls so disturbing they seem almost out of a nightmare. A nightmare we visit today as we dive into the conclusion of the terrifying disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our second episode on the disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Dorothy Jane Scott disappeared on the night of May 28, 1980, and in the early hours of May 29th, her car was found burning miles from where she was last seen. Last week, we learned about the unsettling night of her disappearance and the subsequent investigation by law enforcement. Conrad Bostron and Pam Head gave their accounts of a fateful trip to the hospital, where Dorothy left to fetch her car from the parking lot and never returned. And while their story left us with a lot of questions, the case itself was nearly impossible to crack. The police hit a roadblock when they failed to identify a suspect, and things looked doomed almost from the get-go. Dorothy's mother, Vera, revealed that Dorothy had been receiving calls from an anonymous man in the months leading up to her kidnapping. But because Dorothy never reported the caller and could never identify who he was, the calls led to a dead end. Dorothy claimed the voice sounded a little familiar, which suggested someone she knew, but not very well. Well, that hardly narrows down the list of candidates. Everyone was stumped, and Dorothy's family prayed for some sort of closure. That is until... Hello? Are you related to Dorothy Scott? Yes, I am. I've got her. That's right. The anonymous voice was back, this time with a taunting message for Dorothy's mother, Vera. Well, how did he get Vera's number? He must have gone through the phone book. 
and called all the Scots in Anaheim asking if they were related to Dorothy until he found the right family? Dorothy's kidnapper already demonstrated some obsessive tendencies, remember? I'm sure he had the patience to call until he found what he was looking for. Vera reported the call, but the police could not do much about it. How could they? Once again, all they had was a strange voice at the other end of the phone. So Dorothy's parents sat back and hoped for a ransom note, a confession, any sort of news, but nothing came along. Jacob Scott, Dorothy's father, was growing increasingly frustrated. The police, in an attempt to keep the investigation under wraps, had asked the Scots to refrain from revealing any information to the media. Jacob and Vera weren't thrilled with the plan, but they willingly went along hoping that it was the best course of action to keep their daughter safe. Two weeks had passed since Dorothy disappeared, and investigators failed to produce a suspect. So, in the second week of June 1980, Jacob decided to take matters into his own hands. Hello, this is Pat Riley with the Santa Ana Register. Hello, my name is Jacob Scott. My daughter, she disappeared two weeks ago. I need to run the story to know if anyone can tell us anything. The police, they didn't want me to talk to you. Why don't you start from the beginning, Mr. Scott? It was on the 28th of May. On June 12th, 1980, the Santa Ana Register ran the story of Dorothy Jane Scott. The article relied heavily on the first-hand accounts of Dorothy's co-workers, Conrad and Pam. And the reaction to the piece didn't take long. The same day the issue released, the paper's editor received another phone call. I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. But I caught her cheating with another man, and she denied having someone else, so I killed her. Our chronic caller is back, this time with a confession. Well, couldn't this just have been a hoax? Maybe a prankster read the story and called to claim the killing? Well, they could have, except the caller provided details that weren't printed in the newspaper article. Remember the scarf? Oh, the one Dorothy changed from black to red at her house before going to the hospital. That's the one. The caller knew she had changed it. And they knew Conrad was at the hospital being treated for a spider bite. How could he possibly know that when Conrad didn't even know why he wasn't feeling well until they were at the hospital? Well, the caller could have gotten any information from Dorothy while she was under duress. Or if we assume she knew him, perhaps he approached her casually before he kidnapped her. What are you doing here at the hospital, Dorothy? <gasps> oh, it's you. Dear Lord, you scared me half to death out here. Is Conrad your lover, Dorothy? My lover? Heavens no, not even close. I just took him here because he looked like he might faint. He was so sick. Turns out it was just a spider bite. Now that I think about it, what are you doing here? That would explain why nobody reported hearing any screaming or violence in the parking lot. If Dorothy knew the kidnapper, her first instinct might not have been to cry for help. Maybe, though, there's another theory that we should entertain. Maybe the caller really was a scorned lover of Dorothy's. Well, if he was, Dorothy was really good at keeping a secret. Her dad, friends, and co-workers all claimed her dating life was non-existent. But maybe, just maybe, Dorothy was secretly seeing someone. Well, maybe. But I think it's pretty safe to say that the kidnapper was delusional, considering the phone calls and his irrational actions and statements. Ooh, like giving her a dead rose. Or stalking her in the first place. 
The caller also claimed Dorothy called him from the hospital and that's how he knew she was there? However, Pam Head, a key witness in Dorothy's disappearance, who was the only person to be with Dorothy the entire night, swore that Dorothy never left her side. The two of them sat patiently in the hospital waiting room, making idle small talk and looking at magazines until Conrad returned. But why would the killer lie about such a trivial fact? Well, it seems like he had delusions about the nature of their relationship, that he genuinely believed Dorothy had feelings for him and they had a serious relationship. Maybe, in some twisted way, it helped to justify his actions. In the end, what matters is that the Santa Ana Register and Vera Scott had both spoken to Dorothy's kidnapper. But there was nothing they could do about it, as the kidnapper did not stay on the line long enough to be traced. They were helpless and completely at the mercy of the kidnapper's taunting calls. After the phone call to the Register, the police were feeling fairly pessimistic about ever finding Dorothy alive. With no choice, after the paper ran the story, the police started being open with the press. Though their message wasn't very positive. They warned to prepare for the worst, even if they were to find Dorothy. To be frank, the Scots are probably reaching the point that we have reached. That we probably won't find her alive. There is always a glimmer of hope. But it isn't very bright. Chief! Chief Mitchell! Even Jacob Scott seemed ready to throw in the towel. This far down the road, if we can just get the body, if that's what he's done with her, maybe we can go on and live a normal life. Mr. Scott! Mr. Scott! As devastated as her parents must have been, they were looking for any type of closure, anything to end this nightmarish saga, even if that closure meant discovering their daughter had died. Our story will continue in a moment, after a brief message. And now, let's continue our story. Closure was something Dorothy's parents were never allowed. Or at least not for a long time. Because... Hello? I've killed your precious Dorothy. The caller called back. Again. I have her, and I'm never bringing her back. And again. She's with me. She will always be mine. And again. I've killed her. And again. She's alive. I've got her. Every Wednesday. Always with mixed messages. Claiming Dorothy was alive or that Dorothy was dead. So they never knew what really happened to her. And he called them like this every week. For four years. Hold on a second. Four years? That's right. The obsessive tendencies behind our caller's motivations were on full display in the aftermath of Dorothy's kidnapping. He refused to give Vera Scott even a week of respite. The police wiretapped the phone, but the caller never stayed on the line long enough to trace them. And almost like the final punchline to a terrible joke, the Scots could not change their number because they ran an engineering contracting business, and they could not do so without risk of losing regular clients. And they still held out hope that one day they could trace or catch the kidnapper. But the caller was meticulous. Always short calls, always when Jacob Scott was out of the house. So Vera was trapped, week in and week out, suffering at the hands of the monster who took her daughter. 
and the police once again had nothing to go on but the sound of a voice. They still have that voice on file. It's been described as gruff and vague, almost as if purposely disguised. To this day, the recording has not been released to the public, and the caller has never been identified. And so the kidnapper was free to call Vera over and over and over again. But why would he go to the trouble? Could he have had a grudge against the Scots? Was this a man who was enacting some sort of sick revenge? Or could it have just been a type of cruel boast? Well, remember, in the last episode, we identified the kidnapper as possibly having a psychological condition called obsessive love disorder. It's possible that this disorder and his obsession was the force driving these calls. You're saying that the stalker was fueling his obsession by calling Dorothy's parents over and over? Right. One of the main symptoms of obsessive love disorder is the irrational need to control the object of your desire. So even after he had kidnapped Dorothy, calling her parents was a way of reinforcing his delusions. It's important to remember that someone suffering from obsessive love disorder forms their own reality. So by connecting with Dorothy's family members, he was fixating on this idea of ownership. Repeatedly calling Dorothy's family was his way of exerting control over them and extending his ownership over everything and everyone connected to Dorothy. That's very unsettling if you ask me. Mm, And it gets even more disturbing. Because apparently our kidnapper was oddly particular about who he was calling. Hello? Dorothy Jane's not coming home today. No, uh, no. You must have the wrong number. Nobody lives here by that name. In April of 1984, Jacob Scott happened to be home at the time of the kidnapper's weekly call, and he answered the phone instead of his wife. He told the caller he had the wrong number. After that, the calls stopped. Odd that after four years of repeat calls, a different person on the end of the line is the only catalyst that made him stop. It could have been that the caller thought the family moved, or maybe the change of pace in something that had become routine was enough to throw him off. Or maybe the kidnapper was afraid Jacob might recognize his voice. You're saying that Jacob might have known Dorothy's kidnapper. Well, remember how Dorothy's dad used to own Swinger's Psych Shop, the place where Dorothy worked? What if the caller was a shop employee? Someone who knew both Dorothy and her dad from working with both of them. It makes sense that the stalker would be somebody connected to Dorothy's work environment. Remember, Dorothy disappeared the night of a work meeting, and somehow the kidnapper knew she was there. No matter how delusional this guy was, it's hard to imagine him spending every waking moment following Dorothy. Seems it would be much easier for a co-worker or someone who knew a co-worker to track her. So the call stopped in April of 1984, and everything seemed quiet with Dorothy Jane Scott for the first time in four years. That is, until three and a half months later on August 6th. You done for the day, Greg? Not yet, Paul. Just thought I saw something strange where the backhoe was digging. Probably plenty of strange things out here. Holy... Is that a bone? Let me see that. (laughs) Well, my friend, looks like you went and found yourself some good old dog bones. (laughs) You look at that. I I guess you're right. For a second I thought... Well, never mind. 
Better get back on that backhoe before we run out of daylight. Wait a second. It can't be. Now that sure as hell ain't a dog. In early August of 1984, a construction worker in northern Anaheim found human remains buried underneath dog bones. Upon realizing what they were, the worker promptly called the police. They were just buried here? That's right. Right underneath the dog as though someone wanted to put the two of them together. <laughs> Not what you were expecting to find when you signed up for this gig, was it? Hey, hey, Hendrix. I think I got something else here. What's that? Looks like a ring. And a watch. Nice of the sick bastard to leave behind some valuables. Hey, hold on a second. Something is weird about this watch. Huh? The date. Check out the date. May 29th, 1980. You're telling me she's been out here for four years? I'm not telling you that. The watch is. Look, we better keep digging. Make sure we don't miss anything else. Vera Scott claimed the turquoise ring and watch were her daughter's. A week later, dental records identified the body as Dorothy Jane Scott's. The now broken watch read 12.30 a.m. May 29th. Now, this suggests Dorothy had been killed in the first few hours after she was taken from the hospital. While her family felt a great deal of grief brought on by the minute hope that their daughter was still out there, the sense of closure offered an overwhelming amount of relief. Before you didn't know whether she was, or she wasn't. It's a big relief. It's one hell of a relief. For the Scots, after years of torturous reminders of their daughter's tragic fate, the discovery of her body was an incredible weight lifted off their shoulders. We can only imagine how much they'd hoped day in and day out for over four years for some type of answer. The Santa Ana Register ran the story about the body in mid-August of 1984, and the whole of Orange County thought this saga was over. It's not over? Oh no, not the phone again. Hello? <laughs> Hello? Is Dorothy home? Once again, the caller was back to taunt Dorothy's family. This time, he got Dorothy's brother, Alan, while her parents were making funeral arrangements. Even after everyone knew Dorothy's horrible fate, our killer could not resist. After this incident, the caller was finally finished. On August 22, 1984, the family held a memorial service where they buried Dorothy's remains. The calls stopped, and Jacob and Vera were left in relative peace to raise Dorothy's son, Sean. The persistence of these calls still baffle me, especially if he killed Dorothy so quickly after taking her. That's certainly baffling and, frankly, horrifying to think about a man getting some sort of gratification from torturing grieving parents. But we have to remember this was more than likely an unstable individual. Yeah. If we accept the theory that he was suffering from delusional obsession with Dorothy, then maybe these calls were grounded in something more like denial. By murdering Dorothy, the killer gained the control he sought over her. But afterward, his only way of asserting and bolstering that control was through these phone calls. Dorothy's family was the only connection to Dorothy that he had left. Jacob Scott died in 1994, and Vera passed away eight years later in 2002. 
neither parent was able to see any justice for their daughter. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, let's continue our story. The discovery of Dorothy Jane Scott's body finally answered the question of what happened to her, but it opened up a host of new questions. First, did the dog buried with her have any significance or was it just sort of some strange coincidence? Theorists have speculated that because there was a fair amount of cult activity in Southern California in the 80s, that potentially Dorothy was tied in with some kind of cult sacrifice. But this theory seems a little far-fetched as Dorothy's killing appeared to be a more personal act rather than some religious rite. Also, the location of Dorothy's body is troubling. Dorothy's body was deposited 10 to 15 miles in the opposite direction of where her car was found. That means our kidnapper needed to drop Dorothy's body on Santa Ana Canyon Road, then drop her car off and burn it, and then he needed to get back to the hospital where he must have left the vehicle he followed Dorothy with. I see what you're getting at. How could the killer accomplish all that travel with only one vehicle? How could he follow Dorothy to the hospital and then get back there to retrieve his car before morning after traveling over 10 miles in Dorothy's car? Which suggests... That our killer might have not been working alone. We have to keep that possibility in mind. We know the killer probably was planning to kidnap Dorothy, but he could not have planned to kidnap her at the hospital that particular night as the trip was only because of an emergency. Well, if he had an accomplice, it could have helped him to improvise. In the first article written about Dorothy's disappearance, Pam claimed that there was a second car that followed Dorothy's out of the parking lot the night of her disappearance. However, the car is never mentioned in the ensuing articles. Well, how could the police ignore such an important detail? Maybe it wasn't the police. Maybe Pam's account changed because she forgot or simply wasn't sure whether there was a second car or not. Now, it's nearly impossible to uncover any more information about a second car. But even so, it seems highly unlikely that our killer could do this on his own. Unless he caught a cab. You brought off the late. Mm-hmm. Don't get too many fares this time of night. Had some business to take care of. Must have been some rough business with the state you're in. I'm not paying you to pry into what my business is. Hey, buddy. Just passing the time. Well, why don't you pass the time watching the road? You missed the turnoff to the hospital. I find it hard to believe a cab driver wouldn't report any suspicious activity, especially when the reports of Dorothy being missing surfaced. I suppose so. But I still think it's possible that a cab driver didn't put two and two together. He probably had a fair share of strange encounters in the late night hours. And the fact that he continued calling the parents makes it feel like a man who was isolated and alone, not really the type to call on a partner to help with murder. Mm, Agreed. But the crime itself looks very difficult to pull off single-handedly. This was a case that every time a question was answered, it seemed like two more popped up in its wake. The hydra of crime cases. After the phone call stopped in August of 1984, everything came to a complete halt. No more information was released to the public until a crime blogger tracked down Dorothy's son through the internet. He said a lot about his mother, how he does not remember her very well, but was told she raised him well. 
He also praised both Vera and Jacob for being wonderful influences in his life. Then he went on to say something very interesting. He apparently became aware of a suspicious person through some of Dorothy's friends, a man who had allegedly had an obsession with Dorothy. He is described as an unstable individual who lived in the Santiago Mountains. He was linked to cult activity. Whatever that means. And knew Dorothy because his sister worked at Swinger's psych shop. Which would explain how he knew Dorothy's work schedule. And about the after-hours meeting. And how she vaguely recognized his voice. In fact, it explains a lot of things and seems like a good fit for our kidnapper. So, why didn't the police bring him in? Well, Dorothy's son believes police had no hard evidence to consider him a person of interest or a suspect. So, he was never brought in. And so this man was never looked at thoroughly, and we will never know if he was the killer behind the death of Dorothy Jane Scott. So do you think it was this mysterious man from Dorothy's son's account? I still think it could have been a co-worker at Swingers. The suspicions and the holes in Pam and Conrad's story just never quite added up. Plus, there was the killer's fear that Dorothy's dad might recognize him. I just can't get over how the kidnapper had so many intimate details of Dorothy's schedule. It really suggests a co-worker, or at least someone who used to work at Swingers. Or perhaps it was just a random stalker, someone who fell in love with Dorothy because she smiled at him at the grocery store. Mm, but we think it was probably an anonymous co-worker. The evidence is too great to ignore. Either way, we will most likely never know for sure. At least a positive part of Dorothy's legacy lives on in Sean. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Drew Cole and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Harris Markson, Manu Narayan, Vanessa Richardson, and Brooklyn Sarver. <laughs>